Would you pray with me? Father, we come this morning to, to the cross, to the foot of the cross. It's a, it's a weighty place to be, but it's a glorious place to be as we, as we, as we gaze upon Jesus and as we consider his sacrifice for us. So, Father, I pray that you would be with us in this time, that you would open our eyes to see, to see him, to see Jesus with, with eyes of faith, and we, as we gaze upon him, would be transformed. We ask your, your blessing on our time together. We pray that you will be glorified and, and magnified and honored in it and through it, and that Jesus' name would be lifted up. We pray this in his name. Amen. So, uh, so here we are. This is um, quite literally the moment to which everything John has written to this point was leading. I, I think we've said it before other, at other times as we've gone through the gospel that, that these are pivotal moments, that these are transitional moments, that there's, there's something happening that's where a page is being turned. We've seen that several times as we've made our way through, through John's gospel, but but now we are at the pivotal moment. Everything that has been, has been said and done, everything that John has recorded has been leading to this moment in time. You might say that everything that's happened in human history has been leading to this moment in time. I, 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 don't, I don't think I'm overstating that. I don't think I'm making a bigger deal out of it than it really is. It sounds, it sounds maybe a little, bit, a little bit of hyperbole to say that, but I, I feel like here we are at the pivotal moment in the history of the universe, Jesus on the cross. Max Lucado wrote a book called The Cross, and like a compelling... The cross rests on the timeline of history like a compelling diamond. Its tragedy summons all sufferers. Its absurdity attracts all cynics. Its hope lures all searchers. History has idolized and despised it, gold-plated and burned it, worn and trashed it. History has done everything but ignore it. How could you ignore such a piece of lumber? Suspended on its beams is the greatest claim in history. A crucified carpenter claiming to be God on earth, divine, eternal, the death slayer. Never has timber been regarded so sacred. No wonder the apostle Paul called the cross, the cross event, the core of the gospel. It's bottom line sobering. It's history's hint. It's this, this moment in time. It's, it's the... It's the, the pivot point in history, as he says, it's history's hinge. I'm not, I'm not sure he doesn't cite what scripture he's talking about when he says that the Apostle Paul called the cross event the core of the gospel. Perhaps he's talking about 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 and 2, when Paul writes, and I, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Or maybe he's talking about Galatians 6.14. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 
We know that Jesus, when He was in the upper room with His disciples, He, he initiated this, this, this table that we, that we participate in week by week. And Jesus, when He did that, he, he took bread and He took the cup. And when He took the cup, He said, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Even in that moment, He was pointing forward to this moment, the moment at the cross when His blood would be shed and he said, as my blood is shed, as my blood is poured out, that is the inauguration of a new covenant. So I don't think it's an overstatement that at this moment in history, Jesus on the cross, we see this hinge of history, this pivot point, this inauguration of a, of a new covenant that replaces the old. Old things are passing away and things are coming new. All of this is happening here in in this moment here at the cross. I entitled this message this morning, The, the Testimony of the Cross. Uh, and that might beg a question from you. What, what is it that we see here that we would see as, as testimony? Well, I, I think there, there, there are three reasons for me why I, why I chose this. We're going to see the testimony of the cross played out in, in three different um, you know, sub-testimonies, I guess you could call them. Um, the testimony of Pilate's sign, the testimony of God's Word, the testimony of Christ's compassion. That's what we're going to see here as we make our way through the text this morning. But as we know, the, one of the overall themes of John's Gospel is testimony. Over and over and over again, he tells us that things are being said, things are being done. The, the signs that Jesus performed, all were, were done and said and performed as a, a testimony to who Jesus is. We see, it in, we see it in John's purpose. John tells us why he wrote the book. We've, we've returned to this on, on a number of occasions. But in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John writes this, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. All of these things that John has recorded, and he tells us he's been selective. He said, I, I could have written many other things, but I chose these things in particular as a testimony to who Jesus is. And the, and the intent was that through seeing Jesus, through this testimony that we might believe. But that isn't the only place he tells us something like this. When we get to the end of the, the crucifixion account... This is what uh, John writes. This is in chapter 19, verses 36, I'm sorry, verses 35 and 36. He says, actually it's just verse 35. He says, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And so not only the, the God truth that you also may believe. So not only the, the gospel in its entirety, but the account of the crucifixion specifically John recorded these things. He, he gave this testimony. He, he bore witness so that faith would be engendered. So I think that's what we're going to see here this morning. I, at least from my point of view, what we're seeing is John's selective account of the crucifixion. And his intent is to testify, to bear witness, to, to present Jesus 
So this is where it begins. As Robert said, we sort of begin in the middle of a verse, uh, takes a, a paragraph break for us. So they took Jesus, the Roman soldiers, after Pilate has examined Jesus, after he's gone through a trial both before the council and then sort of this mini trial we saw at the beginning after the Garden of Gethsemane, he's taken to Annas. All of these things are recorded by John. All of these things have transpired, and now he has been condemned to death. And they, the Roman soldiers, took Jesus. We noted this before, that all of this was under Jesus' sovereign control. They didn't take him against his will. They took him according to his will. And they took him, and, and he went out bearing his own cross. Again, John here is being selective. The other gospel writers tell us a little bit more of the story. They tell us as Jesus went out down the Via Dolorosa and he's, he's carrying the crossbeam of his cross across his shoulders. But because of what he has undergone in terms of, um, of, of physical beating, been scourged on multiple occasions, he just can't quite make it. And there's a, a man along the path, Simon of Cyrene, and he's enlisted to carry the cross to this place of a skull called Golgotha. John doesn't choose to include Simon in his story. Uh, perhaps it just wasn't important to him, or he just assumed that the readers of his gospel were also readers of the others and would, would be aware of it. Uh, he's, he's, he's more succinct and to the point, saying Jesus is bearing his own cross, and he bears it to this place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. This um, place of the skull, the, the word skull in Latin is Calvaria. Calvaria, that's where we get our English word, Calvary. So we could say he is taking his cross, bearing his cross to, to Calvary. And then John simply writes this. There, they crucified him. There, they crucified him. Four simple words that carry an, an, uh, an incredible amount of meaning. There they crucified him. He doesn't elaborate. Again, I, my assumption is, is that he knew that the people that were reading this gospel knew what that meant. They understood crucifixion. They understood what Jesus was undergoing at this point. Um, just for our purposes, uh, I, I, I personally have never witnessed a crucifixion like that, but uh, the folks that, that uh, John was reading to would have been intimately acquainted with it. See, a crucifixion was a public execution. It was intended to be viewed. So most, if not all, of John's original readers would have been witnesses to uh, a crucifixion at, at some point or other. This is what R.C. Sproul writes uh, about crucifixion in general. He says this, Once at the execution site, the prisoner was placed flat on the ground and his arms were either, were either nailed or tied to the crossbeam. In the case of Jesus, nails were used. We don't know whether he was pierced through his hands or through his wrists. That remains a questionable, a questionable point in the historical record. Then the prisoner was hoisted up and the crossbeam was attached to the vertical beam, usually by nails. 
A tiny platform was affixed toward the bottom of the vertical beam as a place for the feet of the prisoner to be secured, and then the feet were nailed or tied to the vertical beam. That small platform was provided so that the prisoner could push his body up, raising his diaphragm so that he could breathe during the agony of crucifixion. At first glance, that may seem to be a drop of mercy for the condemned prisoner. On the contrary, it was done to extend the torture because prisoners dying by this method involuntarily gasped for breath, and if they could not draw air, they would die much more quickly, usually, usually by asphyxiation. By allowing the prisoner to push himself up an almost involuntary action, the executioners prolonged the agony. This was the, the death that our Savior died, nailed to a cross pushing himself up to draw breath. It's the reason later we'll see that when the Jewish authorities insisted that these bodies be removed from the crosses prior to the, because it was the day of preparation for the Passover, they said, we need to go and break the legs of these prisoners. If the legs were broken, they could no longer push themselves up. So the asphyxiation death would be just that much sooner. This is what Jesus suffered. We already heard from Psalm 22 this morning. It gives us glimpses, prophetic glimpses that David saw looking forward to the death of Jesus. It was an agonizing death. It was, a, it was an excruciatingly painful death. In fact, the word excruciating comes from the cross. Out of the cross. That's what excruciating means. That's why the word was coined. It's used to describe this kind of death. John also tells us that there were two others, one on either side, and Jesus was crucified between them. He doesn't elaborate again. Luke tells us more about the interaction that Jesus had with these two others. John just says they were others. Matthew tells us that they were robbers, the same word that was used to describe Barabbas. In John's Gospel, we know that they were ones who had been, had been convicted and were being crucified because they had committed some kind of crime. We see in this glimmers of, we see in this fulfillment of what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53, 12, that he was numbered with the transgressors. So this is the testimony of the cross. This is the cross, the cross speaking, bearing witness about who Jesus is. And then John gives us, as I said, three different aspects of that testimony. He begins with what I'm calling the testimony of Pilate's sign. And I chose that word sign intentionally. The word sign doesn't appear in our text. It says that it was an inscription. It was, uh, it was placed over Jesus' head. Uh, the, others, the other Gospels tell us that this was intended to be the charge for which Jesus was being executed. Pilate wrote this inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And we talked about this last week. Pastor Chris talked at length about Pilate and his interaction with Jesus. And one of the key themes in his interaction was this, this idea that Jesus was a king. 
that Jesus was, in fact, king of the Jews. He, Pilate asked him if he was, and, and Jesus responded, and they went back and forth. And then when, when Pilate ultimately brings Jesus before the people, he says, Behold your king. And in that discussion of that text, Pastor Chris told us that we're seeing, we, we're seeing there, as we have seen in other places in John's gospel, Pilate was saying more than he really knew he was saying. He was, he was expressing a truth that he didn't even really believe. On this inscription, Pilate wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. I think in this inscription, we see two different aspects of who Jesus is. We see his, his humanity and we see his deity. We see, we see Jesus of Nazareth, a man who lived in human history, who came from a particular place. He was a human being, like, like we are. That was Jesus of Nazareth. And then there is this title, the King of the Jews. It's a, it's a messianic title. Again, we see Pilate saying much more than he knew, much more than he believed. He was, he was expressing truth. This was truth coming from the, well, from the writing of a man who said he didn't even know what truth was, or he at least inquired of it. What is truth? He is expressing on this sign truth. He in, he, in fact, is testifying to the truth, a truth that he does not even know or understand. This is um, the way F.F. F. Bruce expresses this. He says, The wording of the title, the inscription, makes it plain that the charge on which Jesus was sentenced to be crucified was the charge on which he was originally brought before Pilate. In any official record of his execution, the crime would be set down as sedition. But, as previously, with Pilate's presentation of Jesus as king, immediately before passing sentence from his tribunal, so now John sees a deeper meaning in the title on the cross than either Pilate or the chief priests could appreciate. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The crucified one is the true king. The kingliest king of all, because it is he who is stretched on the cross, he turns an obscene instrument of torture into a throne of glory and reigns from the tree. He reigns from the tree. See, in this moment, as Jesus is crucified, as he, as he hangs suspended between earth and heaven, he is no less king. Everything that has happened to this point that led to this moment in time, to this pivotal moment, was orchestrated by Jesus himself. They, they didn't take him outside of his will. He was not crucified outside of his own will. This moment in time, this testimony of Pilate's sign is just a, it's just a, a signifier of that. This is a sign that testifies to the truth of who Jesus is, both man and God, and that he is, was, and forever will be king, that he reigns. Now we see that, that, that Pilate didn't have any idea what he was saying. The, react, the reaction of the chief priests to, to change what it said he says, uh, don't say, don't write the king of the Jews, just, just write that this man said, I am the kind to validate Jesus' claim. 
uh, I think we can see from his response, what I've written, I've written, he was really just trying to tweak the Jewish leaders. It was kind of in your face to them. It was, in a sense, mockery of Jesus and his claims. It was the antithesis of what the claim actually led to. They, he, he didn't believe the truth. He was putting the truth up as mockery. And yet there it is, the testimony of Pilate's sign for, for all to see as, as many people went by and viewed it in their own languages. So that's this first aspect, this testimony of the cross as seen in the testimony of Pilate's sign. But we also see the testimony of, of God's Word here in what John has selected to tell us. Verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garment among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. And again, this is just a testimony. A testimony from Scripture shows that what is, what is happening in this pivotal moment in history, even the, even the little details, even what might seem to be a trivial detail, it's happening because it was foretold. It was, it was prophesied. John's the only one that makes this connection all for the gospel writers tell us that, that the soldiers cast lot for Jesus' clothes. John is the only one who makes the connection with the, the prophetic word in, in Psalm 22. That's where this phrase comes from. They, divide, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. We heard it this morning as Pastor Chris wrote it for the, uh, read it for the, uh, for the call to worship. They, they divided his garment. They, they cast lots for his tunic. John doesn't come right out and say it. I think what this is intended to tell us is that um, Jesus had no more clothing to his name. As he hung there on the cross, he was, he was unclothed. This, this garment, this tunic... Um, if I can read the footnote down at the bottom, I need to get some new glasses. Uh, it says that the, uh, this tunic was a long garment worn under the cloak next to the skin. It would have been an, an undergarment. So Jesus was stripped down. His undergarment was even removed. And this is the, the tunic that they were casting lots for that had no seam, that they would have had to divide by cutting it and then thereby making it less valuable. So only John tells us this. Only John reveals to us this, um, this connection between what we see occurring in this moment and this prophetic word that was written, that was written centuries before. That they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. The, the detail in that prophecy is, 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 is astounding, isn't it? It's not, it's not just sort of a vague reference to what happened at the foot of the cross that day. It's a specific reference. Not, not only did they divide, but they also cast lots for his clothing. Now, let's, let's you know, be real. The, 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 the Roman soldiers didn't know what they were doing. 
Again, we see, we see people acting in ways that, that they had no idea about. It's not like they got together before the, uh, before the crucifixion and they said, when we get to this guy, we know they've, there, there's, there's, a, there's a psalm. We read Psalm 20. Customarily, they were entitled to the, the clothing of the person that they were crucifying. It was just a custom. But in this case, they specifically fulfilled the dividing of the garments, the splitting up of the different pieces of Jesus' garment that were already divided. You know, one person took his sandals and somebody else took his outer garment, his, his cloak. And, and yet there was this inner garment that was not dividable and they, they chose to, um, to cast lots for it. I say they chose to. They did it because they were fulfilling Scripture. John is going to tell us some other fulfillments of Scripture as we move forward through this passage, by the way, while Jesus is on the cross in verse 28, in verse 36, in verse 37. We'll save those for when we get there. But in all these cases, that nothing that is happening to Jesus is testimony of God's Word. He wants to let us know that nothing that is happening to Jesus in this moment came as, a, as some sort of surprise to God. It's some sort of surprise to Jesus that in all of these cases, these were fulfillments of prophecy. And again, we get this clarification. This is again from, from R.C. Sproul. This is a good book, by the way. I would recommend it to you. It's, a, it's um, from the uh, St. Andrew's Ex Expositional Commentary Series. Um, Sproul just has a way of writing things in a way that I think are, are very accessible. I, I certainly appreciate them as I do my own study. This is what he wrote. He said, A prisoner who was executed normally had five articles of clothing. The tunic, which was a seamless garment, was the undergarment. The four soldiers divided Jesus' other articles of clothing among themselves, but the tunic presented a problem for them. Because the tunic had been made with no seam, it was significantly valuable. And they didn't want to lessen its value by cutting it into four pieces. Therefore, they're, therefore, they decided to cast lots for it, winner take all. This indignity was also prophesied in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. 18. John does not say that the Roman soldiers got together and said we should gamble for his garments because it says in the Jewish scriptures that someone is going to cast a lot for his clothes and we want to make sure the scriptures are fulfilled down to the last detail. No, this is John's editorial comment pointing out that the soldiers, when they went through this act of gambling for the garments of Christ, unknowingly and involuntarily were fulfilling the precise details of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the death of the Messiah. John is zealous to help his reader understand that what happened on the cross was not an accident of history, but it came to pass through the invisible hand of a sovereign providence. So in a in a real in a in a in a in a, in a indisputable way, we see this testimony, this witness to who Jesus is, that he is the fulfillment of prophecy. We see it in the actions of these soldiers. And then finally, we we read this. Picking up uh, in the middle of verse 24. So the soldiers did these things, but in contrast, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, 
Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Uh, be honest, it took me a while to figure out why John included this story. The first two made, made a little more sense to me at, at first and second, maybe fifth or tenth. I don't know. How many, how many readings? John's the only one that tells us this story, which makes a somewhat, somewhat sense because he was there. When it says the disciple that Jesus loved, he, this is, again, the John's, we've seen before, John's oblique reference to himself. So John was an eyewitness to this. In fact, he was included in the interaction. When Jesus spoke, he was speaking both to his mother and he was talking to John. So, so why did John, and I came to this conclusion. You might come up with other reasons. I, I invite you to think this through. But for me, I see as a testimony, we see in this moment Christ's compassion. I think this is a testimony to Christ's compassion. Um, just, just by way of clarification, um, Jesus, uh, John lists, as the other gospel writers do, some of the, uh, some of the people who were there. It was both John and then these, these women. There's some sort of there's dispute among the scholars about whether it's referring to three women or four women. Um, and then in comparing with the other gospels, we know that, at, uh, that um, Mark tells us there was a woman there named Salome, which is... If, 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 he's, they're, if they're including the same list, then Salome was Mary's sister, Jesus' mother's sister, who would have been Jesus' aunt. Um, and then Mark tells us that the mother of James and John was there, John the apostle, who was also standing there. So his, 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 his mom was with them. Some scholars, and this is disputed, some scholars put that all together and they say that Mary's sister... Mary's, the mother of Jesus' sister, was, also, was, was the same person as this Salome, who was James and John's mother. You know, it can't be indisputably proven, but it's an intriguing thought, isn't it? That the mother of James and John was the sister of Jesus' mother, which would have made James and John and Jesus cousins. Some scholars come to that conclusion as we, as we look at this moment, it, it, it kind of makes sense as we see Jesus committing his mother's care to John. In this case, it's, it's, there's already a family connection there, if, if, if all these scholars are correct. There's already a family connection here. James and John were Jesus' cousins, and so he's just, Jesus in this moment is committing his mother to, 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 to part of the family. But I think in the final analysis, it doesn't really matter that much. Because even if, they, even if Jesus and John were not already connected somehow in a family way, they're still part of the same family. Not, not necessarily a, a biological family, but a spiritual family. And that's what we see Jesus doing here. He's committing his mother to this cousin, brother, you know, this, this person who's part of his spiritual family, if nothing else. And in this moment, I just see Jesus in his, uh, in his godly compassion. I thought about it. If there was any moment in time where a person would be justified in being self-centered, this would have been the moment. 
He's hanging in physical agony on the cross, nails through his hands and feet, dying this slow death of, his, of asphyxiation, gasping for his very breath. And in that moment, he's not thinking about himself. As, as the weight of the sins of every person who ever lived are, are weighing down upon him as, as, as he's perceiving his father turning his face from him. In that moment, Jesus doesn't look within. He looks at the, at the people standing at the foot of the cross and he, and he sees his mom and he sees his, his friend, his brother, maybe his cousin John standing there and his thoughts in that moment are for them. It's, it's unbelievable, really, when you stop and think about it. In that moment, he's not thinking of himself. He's thinking about these people that he loves. And he expresses that love in, in the concern that he shows. He's not being self-centered in this moment. He's being others-centered. And I think there's something in that for us. Life, I don't know if you know, life is not always easy. Life comes with, with, with trials and with weights. And we, we talk about, you know, probably completely out of context, the cross that we bear. And, and yet, in those moments, the call for us is to, is to love one another as, as Jesus loved. And we see Jesus loving his mother we see Jesus loving this disciple, this brother, this cousin, even in this moment. This word woman, we saw at, uh, at the wedding in Canaan. This is, seems to be a word that he uses to refer to his mom. It's a, it's a term of endearment. It sounds to our ears a little dismissive, at least especially back then when, when, when Mary came to Jesus and said, we have this problem. We, we, we're, we've, run, we've run out of wine. And Jesus said, woman, what does this have to do with me? In that moment, it sounded a bit dismissive. We see it a little differently here in this context. Clearly, it wasn't intended to be dismissive. It's, it's a term of endearment. Woman, behold your son to the disciple. Behold your mother. He's, he's entirely centered on the people that are around him, even in the midst of his agony. And to me, that testifies to who he is, both in his humanity as a son with a mother, and also as God, who no one but God could love this way. God alone could love in this way, in this moment. I think this is, this is just a testimony to who he is as he demonstrates his compassion, even as he hangs on the cross. So we see again in this moment, this this. This testimony that John is intending for us to see. He, wants to, he just wants, to, wants us to see Jesus. And he wants that testimony to result in our, in our faith. I, I started this morning with uh, this quote from, from Max Licato. And I, uh, I didn't finish it. I almost finished it, but I left a little for, for the end. I'll just pick it up from here. No wonder the Apostle Paul called the cross event the core of the gospel. It's bottom line sobering. If the account is true, it's history's hinge, period. 
If not, the cross is history's hoax. Which is the cross for you? Hinge or hoax? Or in the words of Jesus, who do you say that I am? I think that is the question for each one of us here this morning. Because not only was this moment on the cross the hinge of history, but it's the hinge for each of our personal histories. Those of us who have come to faith in Christ, we can look back in a moment when, when our lives changed entirely, when our lives were hinged, when we, when we pivoted, on, pivoted on the cross of Christ, when we acknowledged that we were sinners in need of a Savior, and our lives turned, were transformed forever. And it may be that you're here this morning and you have never reached that point in your personal history. Just pray that today would be the day when you would turn, when you would come to see Jesus, when, when, you, when the answer to the question, who do you say that I am, would be you are Lord, you are Savior, you are God. Isaac Watts composed a hymn a long, long time ago. And I'll leave you with these words. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all.